Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show featuring two completely opposite longtime friends. I'm Carrie, and I bring the practical buzzkill vibe to this partnership, especially today. And I'm Amy. I tend to be upbeat and social, and I think I better stay far away from Carrie today. Each week, we have book nerd conversations with each other and sometimes a special guest. We not only talk about what we're reading, but also book-adjacent topics, such as... Stuff we've had to Google while reading. New titles on our TBR lists. Film adaptations that we've seen. And bookish news. At the end of our shows, you'll have new books to put on your nightstand and a laugh or two along the way. This week, we chat with Kelsey Madges, an Ohio middle school librarian and book lover. We talk about the highs and lows of working in middle school libraries. If you're like us, it's been almost uh, 40 years since you were in middle school, and a lot has changed for kids and the librarians who help them, such as the use of Chromebooks in classes and the current prevalence of book bans. But Kelsey is a book lover and book supporter through and through. In fact, she admits that she enjoys almost everything she reads. In this episode, we also cover how we feel about book quotes, why letter writing is still important, and what Carrie should really have tattooed on her body. (laughs) Also, please remember that Forward Radio is having its sixth anniversary pledge drive from March 27th to April 9th. We're hoping to raise at least $4,000, and we need your help. Please visit forwardradio.org to donate, and we have some great thank you tokens of our appreciation for supporting the station. Very good. But first, Carrie, you were cranky today. I'm a little cranky. I'm not feeling 100%. I mean, it could very well be allergies since we live in like the the worst place in the whole country. Like if you have allergies, I think the Ohio River Valley is like the worst place to live. So it could very well be allergies, but they're driving me nuts. Whatever this is, if it's a cold, it's driving me nuts. I am feeling old lately, Carrie. I had my second shingle shot Mm. this past week. It kicked my butt. Yeah. Now, I want to encourage everybody when they turn 50 to get their shingle shot because the alternative, nobody wants to get shingles because shingles stays with you for the rest of your life. My grandmother got shingles when she was about 70 and she still had pain on one side of her body for the next 20 years. So the shingles, nobody wants it. But that yeah. shot, it's it's well, a doozy. I had shingles. Like it, they say you should get the shingle shot at 50. I think if they were smarter, they would make it like 40 because I had shingles in my eye two years ago. And now I have to go to the eye doctor once a year to make sure that my eye is okay. And I foresee this being something I have to do like probably for the rest of my life. So I will be, even though I've had shingles, I don't want it again. And so I will be getting mine as soon as I turn 50 in September. Anyway, all these things that were like when you were 30, you thought, oh my gosh, that's for old people. Like a colonoscopy, which I got last year. And the shingle shots. And I don't feel that old in my head, Carrie. Yeah, I think this is called the human condition. And, you know. I guess. Although I was talking to my father-in-law the other day and... My father-in-law said, I remember the 50s as being a really great decade Mm -hmm. because your kids are almost grown. You're usually financially stable enough that you can do some fun things. You still have your health for the most part. And the other thing is, so my husband and I, we didn't know if we wanted to have kids. So we did a lot of fun stuff in our 20s, like when we got married, like we traveled, like did a lot of fun stuff. The, The downside of that is that you don't have your head screwed on right when you're in Mm. your 20s. You're worried about what other people think. You have a lot more psychological drama and angst. And you don't have that in your 50s. By the time you're in your 50s, you don't give a crap. You don't care. I don't care what other people think. You know, I think you can enjoy yourself more in your 50s than you could. Even if you did the same stuff in your 20s, I think you enjoy it and have a better appreciation for it in your 50s. Yeah, I mean, you know, that old adage, youth is wasted on the young. I feel really old saying that, but it's true. (laughs) I had the same thought this past week, so (laughs) you're in company. I mean, I I see my daughter's pictures from her spring break, and I'm like, oh, God. 
Yeah. Part of me is like, well, enjoy it while you're young. And then a part of me is like, yeah, but they're probably doing really stupid stuff. I don't know. You know yeah. what else I think you get a better appreciation for the older you get? What's that? Reading. Yay! Books. <laughs> do, do you love that segue? That's a I good love segue. that segue. I That's love that segue, segue, Carrie. Kelsey's around our age. I, I think she shares probably that that greater appreciation for books as she gets older. So let's let's chat with Kelsey. We are joined this week by Kelsey Madges, who is a friend of the show, a friend of the show who's never been on the show until now, but she's a middle school librarian in Ohio. And uh, I've known her for, has it been 10 years, Kelsey? It's been a long yeah, time. Yeah, I bet it's been at least 10 years. Well, Kelsey, you've joined us to talk about all things books. So thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. I come from two parents who were educators. My father was a middle school teacher. And so I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I think people who teach middle school kids are special, <laughs> special people. <laughs> Maybe a little bit crazy, but special. That's what I was going to say. And by special, she means... Yeah, you have to be a little insane to willingly do that every day. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your role as a middle school librarian. How long have you been doing it and why did you choose this as a as a career? Well, this is my ninth year as a middle school librarian. That's not how I started out. I was actually an elementary school teacher before I had kids. And then I was mostly a stay-at-home mom for quite some time, eight years. I went back into the classroom for one year full-time, and that did not even remotely work for mm -hmm. my family. I don't know how people do it. So we took a step back, and then we had decided, maybe I'll just continue the stay-at-home mom gig for a while, and a library job kind of fell in my lap, and I've been at it ever since. But it is much easier to balance than a full-time teaching gig in terms of being able to take care of my own family. I like to say there are very few library emergencies. <laughs> so mostly whatever I don't get to in a workday is just, you know, sitting there waiting for me for the next workday. And that's great. <laughs> I can really leave it behind at the end of the day if I need to or want to. Yeah. Although Amy and I have this show about book lovers, and sometimes it does seem like there are reading emergencies. I mean, if you're if you're a true book lover, it can feel like there's some emergency book situations. That's that's true, I suppose, but they're mostly in your own of your own making. <laughs> so no one would know if I failed to attend to one. That's true. So tell us what what are the most fun aspects of your job? I mean, it probably sounds cliche, but it's super fun talking to kids about books. And getting to just spend a lot of time immersed in what's new and what authors are talking about and what the kids are interested in. And I guess this would probably happen in public library too, but I just get to learn all kinds of interesting things, working with different kids and different teachers, helping them with research. And um, today the Iditarod starts, the sled dog race in Alaska. And for many years I helped a teacher with a really immersive unit about that. And I'm a totally obsessed fan now, even though we don't teach that unit anymore. <laughs> so just getting exposed to so many different things is also a really fun part of the job. What kind of things do you have to do to prepare on a day-to-day -day basis to be a middle school librarian? I mean, do you have to like research new trends and books for that age level or what kind of things do you have to do? So the answer to that is probably very different depending on what your library and school are like. So my most basic tasks are being there to check books in and out and help with um, student Chromebooks. That is what my job at my school. Some of the kids call me the Chromebook lady. <laughs> so I have had to learn a bunch about just solving common Chromebook problems. And we're a one-to-one -one district, so every student has their own Chromebook. So I am the one of the only people in my building who knows how to use the software that we have to track those. And I think there are probably a lot of school librarians like this who the technology piece has become a big part of their job. I also, though, like working with teachers. So I'll do things like 
make sure I'm up to date on research databases, what we have available to us so I can help the teachers and students when they need to access those for research. I will connect with our teen librarian at our local public library branch to pull resources when I don't have something that we need because she'll help gather things from the public library for me if we need resources. And then I do things on my own. Just, you know, I follow a bunch of authors on Twitter. I read um, some of the professional publications to try to keep up with what's happening in school libraries, follow the trends, see what's about to be published. That can be a frustrating endeavor sometimes because we always have budget constraints and there's only so much you can do with the money and space that you have. So you mentioned Chromebooks. Yeah. A lot of schools have moved to the point where every kid has a Chromebook to the point where, you know, paper is just not used as often. So do you find that resources that maybe in the past would have gone to purchasing books are now going to get ebooks or more of the technology portion than then goes to having print books that that kids can come in and check out. So I think that is probably accurate if you look at the budget of the school district overall. Mm-hmm. As far as the actual my library budget, that still primarily goes to print resources, but the reason that's true is because we have some wonderful resources available to us through the public library system and then just through the state of Ohio. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to allocate money to database subscriptions or even electronic books. Electronic books are really expensive when you're working with a small, I mean, my budget is minuscule compared to like what the public library budget is. I'm sure nobody's budget feels big enough, but so when the kids enter sixth grade at our middle school, they all get assigned a digital library card number for the public library system. And then they can use the electronic books and all their digital resources, like their databases Mm -hmm. for research through their school issued Chromebooks. And we have it set up so those things are okay with our school filters and all that, our internet filters. So the first year I was in a school library, the librarian had set up OverDrive Mm -hmm. specifically for the school library. And just, now this may have changed because that was nine years ago, but just hosting it, like just being able to have that software available for your library was like half my budget. Oh, wow. And that didn't make sense to me. And I approached, and that's without buying any books. That's just having the software. So I approached a public librarian to see if we could set up a way, you know, to connect with their digital resources, which we're all already paying for gladly with our tax money. Mm -hmm. And I think our digital collection at that time was maybe 150 books. They have literally tens of thousands Mm. of titles. And I just thought, well, this is silly. (laughs) Like, why would I spend that money when it's already there for us? So we've been really, really lucky to take advantage of that. And then in Ohio, there's something called Info Ohio. That's another set of databases. There's some redundancy between those and what's offered through the public library. But any student in the state of Ohio, K through 12, can access those for free which is awesome. Do you have any way of knowing how many times kids are checking out ebooks versus regular books? So I don't have only anecdotally, because since it's not part of my library management system, it's separate through the public library. I don't necessarily know that, but I would say it's probably roughly 50, 50. They're on their screen all the time for school. So many of our textbooks now are on the Chromebook. They do a lot of their work on the Chromebook. So there are definitely kids who are not interested in in reading more on their Chromebook screen Mm -hmm. and really like print books. But then there are other kids who just like the convenience of having an ebook. They can get whatever they want. If it's a little more adult or if it's younger, nobody's giving them a hard time about what they're reading. Mm -hmm. If they're reading an ebook... 
and they can do audiobooks through library as well, through the public library on their Chromebooks. And a lot of the students really like that. So I, I'd say it's a pretty even split. And some kids will just read whatever they can get their hands on. And they read on their Chromebook and read print books. And they want it all, mm-hmm. which is great. <laughs> what are the challenging aspects of working with middle schoolers? And you can't just answer it by saying middle schoolers. <laughs> Although that would cover a lot of it. It would cover a lot, but yeah. Um, So I think there's two separate things that I find most challenging. When I went back to school when my daughter was a toddler to get my library media degree, I wasn't envisioning handling Chromebook screen repairs. Mm -hmm. That is just not a fun aspect of my job. It's good job security because I do a lot about helping kids fix their, and that's anything from sending it for repair when they've cracked their screen to someone coming up and saying like, I don't know what happened, but everything's in Greek and how can I fix it? (laughs) Um, Which is interesting because everything's in Greek, including the setting menus when you're trying to go in and change it. So I don't love that part of my job, but I appreciate the fact that it makes me valuable to my school community. And the other thing that's really a challenge, especially these days, uh, is making purchasing decisions for middle school mm. for a couple reasons. One, I have 10-year-olds to 15-year-olds mm-hmm. in my building. Just the way kids enter school at different ages, it's sixth through eighth grade, but that's this really the span I'm dealing with. It's just really a huge spectrum. Yeah. And there's fabulous stuff being published for middle grade readers and for young adult readers. And middle school kind of falls in between. Mm -hmm. A lot of middle grade books, if you look at what the publisher suggests, they'll say grades four through eight or ages eight through 12. So that's good for like my sixth graders into seventh grade. But then young adults, a lot of that is really hard to justify purchasing for a middle school based on reviews and age guidelines. So you're dealing with that discrepancy of just the different maturity levels and interest levels of your readers. And then the other thing is just how controversial books seem to have become, Mm -hmm. especially, I mean, that's always been the case to a point. And we have a, a relatively diverse student body. You wouldn't necessarily think it in suburban Ohio, but we do. And I work really hard to make sure that all of our students can find representation in the books that are on our shelves, which, knock on wood, has not been controversial in our particular library yet. Yeah. But it feels a little like it's only a matter of time. Yeah. I'm really on the front lines of that controversy. You know, school librarians. Yes. Are. And it's something that I think you would be just dreading when that first case comes up. Like, how are you going to deal with it? Yes, absolutely. We had a funny, this is a little bit funny, except it sort of feels like a bad sign for things to come. I feel like it was the beginning of last school year. My principal called and said, we have a book I need you to go pull off the shelf. And in that moment, I was like, well, I'm just going to do what my principal tells me and then we'll see what this is all about. And and the book she asked me to pull was a book called Lawn Boy by Gary Paulson, Mm -hmm. which I don't know how familiar you are with Gary Paulson. He wrote Hatchet. Right. He writes for middle grade audiences. And I thought, what on earth in a Gary Paulson book could cause a problem? But I went and got it and looked at it. And I was like, I cannot fathom what is possibly the issue with this book. Well, as it turns out, there is another book that was published recently called Lawn Boy. That's more of a, a, a new adult book. It's really not even published for children, but I think some high schools had used it. And uh, I'll just say community member, because I'm not even sure who it was, saw something about that lawn boy and must have looked at our catalog, which is available online. You can search the library catalogs and gotten upset and called the school and everyone was like, oh, we have to take Lawn Boy off the shelf. And I found an article about the controversial one that's written like for adults and sent it to my principal and said, is it possible <laughs> there's been a misunderstanding? <laughs> Which is exactly what had happened. So mm. Gary Paulson was safe, but I well, just thought, gosh. <laughs> yeah. Well, and see, and that's the thing that... <laughs> 
that kind of gets me about a lot of these book issues is that people just like they see something on Facebook or they hear something on whatever, you know, I'm putting this in air quote news channel they watch. (laughs) And have you read the book? And I, and I have this problem amongst the, the students that I teach. The parents haven't read the book and they don't know anything what it's about. And I'm like, if you've read the book and you still have concerns, then I'm more than happy to have a discussion. But if you haven't read the book, then you don't know what you're talking about. And I feel like so much of this is that they haven't read the book or they haven't set foot in a school to even know that, you know, second grade teachers are not showing kids porn. (laughs) I mean, that just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. Go sit in a second grade classroom and you will see that all of these things that they think are happening are not happening. So it blows my mind a little bit. Yeah. So in that context, it feels a little silly, mm-hmm. but um, it's definitely not a silly thing. We have been having conversations, the librarians in our district, about what our policies are and what the procedure is if a book gets challenged. And so there are pieces in place to deal with that mm-hmm. should mm-hmm. it arise. So what are some authors that your students are really enjoying right now? So some of them probably will not surprise you. They've been popular for a long time. Jeff Kinney, who writes Mm -hmm. Diary of a Wimpy Kid, those are immensely popular, still with even eighth graders. The Raina Telgemeier graphic novels, those are a big hit. They have really been enjoying Alan Gratz, Refugee, and his newest book is, is called Two Degrees, and it's about three different areas of the country where children are dealing with some kind of sort of climate catastrophe. And another one who's been popular recently that's maybe a little bit less well-known is Paula Chase. A lot of her books, not all, but a lot have a, there's some kind of sports element to it. Like basketball frequently shows up in her books. And she's one that the kids have kind of been discovering lately and really enjoying. So is she writing about females in sports? Yes, mostly. Her main characters are mostly female. That's great. Because I, I think about, you know, there are those series of books that are, and I can't think of the authors now. I think one might be Christopher. Matt Christopher. Yeah. Yes, who, you know, write all these books about boys in different sports. And there's another yeah. one too. I can't think of. The names of the other authors that I was trying to think of are Mike Lupica and Kwame Alexander. But I think it's great that there's a female doing the same thing. Yes. And it's got this, you know, the middle school friendship drama and the kinds of issues that kids have, you know, with their families or their home. But then there's that backdrop of the basketball team. So those are great. How much of your own reading do you feel like you do to sort of read in terms of what your students might read so that you can recommend things? So probably less than you think. Really? Okay. <laughs> well, I feel like I spend a lot of time reading about middle grade books and maybe reading like a chapter or, you know, a few pages to get a sense of it. I haven't read nearly as many as I would have liked to. And probably part of that is because I still really like to read books written for adults. <laughs> Too. Mm-hmm. And there's only so many hours in a day. The things that I read that are middle grade, a lot of times are something that I've gotten an advanced reader copy through NetGalley, uh, which is great because I do like to sometimes be able to read things before I purchase them, but obviously you can't do that all the time. And then recently I joined a local like youth media review group. So I'll have things to read for that every couple of months. And those will all be middle grade, young adults, maybe the occasional picture book. So I do try to read some, but it's really hard to keep up (laughs) by reading the entire book. Absolutely. Yeah. We know that from our show and we get sent a a lot of requests, you know, from authors and publicists to be on and we like to give them a fair shake, but it's hard to read a whole book, you know, in order to decide whether (laughs) it's something that you want to pursue or not. Well, and I think for the most part, I'm doing okay, because there are several students at my school who believe I have read (laughs) all of the books in the library. They really do. They're like, 
so how did you read all of these? And I think, oh, I've maybe read, you know, 2% of them, but <laughs> I just try to know a little about them. Well, let me ask. So are, are there books that you can think of off the top of your head that you see kids checking out over and over and over again, whether that's the same kid checking out the same book or whether it's you constantly see these books being checked out in general by the student population? So there's some series that have had really long lasting, like they're just sticking around, like Hunger Games Mm -hmm. is still, it's not as, I mean, at one point, I think we had eight or nine copies of each of the Hunger Games books. So we don't need that many now, but that's still really being read and comes back around. Somebody's always got Harry Potter. Mm. I'm trying to think of what some of the standalone titles, like Refugee by Alan Gratz is almost always out. The Babysitter Club graphic novels are so popular. And Kate DiCamillo, she wrote The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane. And because of Winn-Dixie, her books are are popular. And actually, I think her older books are more popular. She has some newer titles that just haven't, in, in my library at least, haven't gained as much traction Among the readers, a lot of kids, especially in sixth grade, will come and look for books that maybe their elementary school teachers read to them. Mm. And now they can read them on their own. And I feel like her books fall into that category. Uh, The One and Only Ivan is another one that kids seem to come back to over and over again. That's a personal favorite of mine. Yeah. <laughs> um, and did you know there's been, there's a one and only Bob and a one and only Ruby now? So she's written books from the point of view of two of the other characters. I Yes, Bob is another favorite of mine. I have not read Ruby yet. That one's pretty new. Do you see a difference in the reading habits between your younger middle schoolers and the older middle schoolers? Yes. I do. Although some things really persist. And I'm a big proponent of, if especially for pleasure, like kids should just read whatever they want. So, mm-hmm. you know, if Diary of a Wimpy Kid makes you happy and you're just going to read those books over and over again, knock yourself out. It might mm-hmm. not be my choice, but go for it. But by eighth grade, the definitely by eighth grade, they're looking for edgier content, definitely mm-hmm. more young adults. Um, the Hate You Give is really popular. That book by Angie Thomas is probably my most frequently lost book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it gets checked out and doesn't come back. And then I think book talk, book yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Like, yeah. has been really influential again, especially among like the eighth graders. We have a lot of eighth graders walking around with Colleen Hoover books, (laughs) which definitely a whole group of girls came to me and really were begging me to put Colleen Hoover books in the library. And I was like, oh, for so many reasons, I cannot do that. Yeah. (laughs) So it's hard to keep things that really hold the interest of eighth graders Mm -hmm. that I can still professionally justify purchasing for the library. But yeah, the eighth graders are harder to please <laughs> than the sixth graders, for sure. It's such a large maturity gap between a sixth yes. grader and eighth grader. I mean, that, you know, just from observing my own kids and their friends, I mean, sixth graders, they're still like an elementary school kid, but they're, they're babies. But by eighth grade, I mean, they are full on teen. Yes. I mean, the eighth grade, some of those eighth grade boys, the eighth grade boys terrified me when I started working in middle school. I mean, they look like full grown men, some of them, but they're, you know, they're still kids. The illusion has fallen away. <laughs> that aspect of like, Open oh, no. their mouths, And then you yes. go, oh yes, you're a child. You're still a child. <laughs> yeah. That's actually one of the things I really like about having the public library digital collection available to them. Because there are even things that I feel like I can safely recommend to an eighth grader, even if I couldn't put it on the middle school shelf when I know the student a little bit, know what they like. So that's a way for them to broaden what's available to them. What you were saying about the Colleen Hoover, I feel like when I was growing up, it was Judy Bloom. You know, Judy Bloom books, especially forever. Like that was a book that every girl wanted to read when they were in middle school. And you know, it sounds like it's a little bit of the Judy Bloom effect with, with the Colleen that, Hoover. Except for that that one was targeted towards 
the appropriate age group yes. as opposed to Colleen Hoover, which is an adult book. Right. Well, I even have to say, I, I always have kids ask me for Stephen King, too. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mm, Stephen King is fantastic. He did not write for middle schoolers. Mm-hmm. So right. you're welcome to read Stephen King, but we don't have it here. Right. I try to be careful to say to them, that's not, you know, that's not for you, <laughs> but just that's not something I can offer in this space. Right. Well, let's talk about you as a reader a little bit. It's just the first time that we've ever met in person, but we have sent messages back and forth to one sure. another. And one time you said to me that you like just about everything that you read, that you give most things four or five stars. So I want you to talk about that a little bit. So I think, <laughs> and maybe this makes me a poor reviewer, but I feel like I'm just sort of predisposed to enjoy things. Books, movies, television shows. I don't necessarily go at it always with a critical eye. That's just my disposition. Although I did kind of scroll back through some of my Goodreads prior to this conversation. And there are a couple things I rated four and five stars that now with a, that I'm a little further removed I'm like, hmm, did I like that that much? <laughs> I don't know if I did. But it's, it's hard for me, too, when I think about how much effort someone puts into writing a book to not just honor that effort. I have done a few three stars. And I think I saw one two star. Oh. And there, when I was scrolling through, I thought, oh, my goodness. You were having a bad day that what day. What was happening? <laughs> like, even sometimes when I don't enjoy the storyline or don't connect to it, I could appreciate if it's well-written. I don't know if that makes sense. You can appreciate that someone would like it. Yes. That it's for someone. But like, oh, that wasn't for me. I always feel apologetic if I rate something lower than four stars. I'm like, "Mm, this just wasn't a book for me. Mm. You might like it, but. I think sometimes books that I've given one or two stars to, especially two, Sometimes I feel like it's not really a, a ding on the writer, on the author, but it is on the editor. Because I oh, feel yeah. like sometimes I, I read something and I'm like, this could have been so much better if, especially when it's like just grammatical things or, you know, sentence yes. structures that don't go anywhere. I'm like, where was the editor? <laughs> where <laughs> this was going on? Yeah. I also find that I need to, sometimes if I rate a book immediately after I read it, it might be a completely different rating than I would give it a month later. Because if I'm still thinking about a book a month later and I gave it a three initially, I might go back and bump it up to a four rather than a three. Because obviously there was something about it that stuck with me. And then there've been other times where I've seen books where I gave them, you know, four, four and a half stars. And I could not tell you exactly the storyline of the book. Was it really that great? Because I can't even remember what the story was. Well, and sometimes I'm rating like, did I enjoy this? Like it might Mm. not have, you know, this phenomenal literary merit that's going to become part of the canon, be forever. But if I just really enjoyed the experience of reading it, that can still be five stars for me. It's almost like they need five stars for entertainment value five stars for like literary merit and then five stars for good writing. Because when you give a book any amount of stars, nobody knows exactly what it is you're, (laughs) you know, it's almost like we need a book rubric. Yes. That's what we need. I belong to book of the month club Mm -hmm. and their rating system is just like, I loved it. I liked it. It wasn't for me. Mm. It's just those three choices. I do tend to love most of those things, but I feel like that's a little more cut and dry because you're right. The star thing, like in theory, we're all operating on the same scale, but it it means different things to different people right. for sure. Right. So tell us about some books that are really different from one another, but you still liked both of them. Some of yes. your favorite titles. A science fiction book, I think it would be considered that I really, really loved was Project Hail Mary. Mm-hmm. And even The Martian also by that, is that Andy Weir, I think? Yeah, yeah. Um, The Martian, well, both of them, there were some parts where it got really technical scientifically. And I was like, well, this doesn't mean a whole lot to me. So I'm going to just skim this part. But I really, really, really loved Project Hail Mary, even as there were parts of it, I felt like, I don't know if I even really understand. Like, I'm not (laughs) smart enough to conceive of what 
is happening here. And then a historical fiction book I've really loved was called The Book of Longings by Sue Monk Kidd. Oh, that's on my list. That one has been recommended uh, to me. The main character's name is Anna. And in this book, she is Jesus's wife. Oh. But it doesn't feel... I mean, I come from a, a Christian background and it didn't feel disrespectful to me. It was fascinating. If you all those years ago read The Red Tent, yeah, yeah, liked it, I feel like you also would like this book. Okay. And then a contemporary fiction that I really love is a book called This Is How It Always Is. Yes. By Laurie Frankel. That's yes. one of my all time favorites. That's an amazing book. It really, really is. And I think you don't have to necessarily relate to the parents of the transgender child in the book. It's just so much about parenting to me mm-hmm. and even adulting. Like we're supposed to magically understand what to do at some point in our lives. <laughs> but I don't know about you, but that fairy hasn't hit me with their stick yet. To, <laughs> like, oh, clearly this is how this should go. I know exactly what to do. So Maybe I that just... would help if somebody came and hit me with a stick. Maybe that would be like, oh, yes, now I get it. <laughs> yeah. So that's a handful. I feel like those are really different books. Yeah. And I have loved them all. All right. So before we close this section, Kelsey, we want to ask you a question about book quotes. Some people, you know, like they they love book quotes. They keep a journal of them. You know, they get T-shirts made with them. Do you tend to be a reader who like remembers book quotes? I notice book quotes, Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't say I automatically remember that. Like I will write things down, Mm -hmm. but there is one specific thing that comes to mind okay. when I hear that question. And it is from A Wrinkle in Time mm-hmm. when Mrs. What's It said, stay angry, little Meg. You will need all your anger now. Oh, that's a good one. I loved that when I read that book as a 10-year-old because it was, it just really struck me because like encouraging a girl, child to be angry <laughs> was oh. not that was totally foreign to like what I knew or felt or thought about what girls were supposed to be. And then I think culturally, especially in the last, let's say seven years or so, (laughs) that quote just keeps coming back to me. Mm. You know, I think there are, there are things worth standing up for and being, you know, not hateful. I don't want to be hateful, but I think there are, there are places for anger. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that is one that really sticks with me. Oh, See, that's an awesome answer. That I, is. Book quotes, I mean, I'll mark them in a book. Like I love to read a really good line and I'll mark it, but I won't remember it after that. Like very rarely does one stick with me that I would be able to tell somebody. <laughs> yeah. And I, the other one that that still, I that knocks around in my head from time to time is, is from This Is How It Always Is. Mm-hmm. There's a, a moment when the, mom is, I don't think she's talking out loud. I think it's just, you know, narration, but she says, you never know, you only guess. It's part of a bigger quote, but that's the thing that I think about also often. Like, am I doing the right thing? You never know, you only guess. That's right. And when you're a parent, you're always guessing. Yes. (laughs) And it's different with each child, you know? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I have a book quote that and it's it's not a short one it's a really long one but i got myself a t-shirt that has it on the back because i have loved this quote from a book for so many years i'm going to read it and i'm going to see if you all know where it's from i must not fear fear is the mind killer fear is the little death that brings total obliteration i will face my fear i will permit it to pass over me and through me and when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Do you know what that's oh. from? Well, I know that Jane Eyre is like your favorite book ever. Is it Jane Eyre? Nope. It is not. I don't know where it's from, but it sounds like it might be more of a, it sounds science fiction-y. It is me. science fiction-y. It's from oh. Dune. Oh. <laughs> it is from Dune my mantra, even though I'm terrible at a lot. I mean, I let fear completely overwhelm me, but like I aspire to be that and not let fear do that to me. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm a big fan of like book quotes and making them part of your life and wardrobe. 
And, you know, if I wasn't such a chicken and didn't have such sensitive skin, that would be something that I would have tattooed on Oh, tattooed. Nice. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's also always, when in doubt, go to the library, which I think is from <laughs> Harry Potter. I think Hermione Granger says that at some point. I think that's a good one to end it on. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. are back with Kelsey Madges and with Carrie. Carrie, I love it when we have a week where we actually don't know what the other one is going to talk about because sometimes we talk ahead of time Mm -hmm. about what we're going to discuss and we didn't do it this time and I like the little bit of suspense going on at least on my end. What book are you reading? Well this is perfect since we're talking with middle school librarian. I recently listened to the audiobook of Wish Tree by Catherine Applegate. And so this book, we talked about age ranges. This book is for ages eight to 12, which is elementary and early middle. And it is the story of a 200-year-old oak tree named Red. And Red is the town's wish tree. One day a year, the town's residents write a wish on a piece of paper or fabric, sometimes even a pair of underwear. I don't know why. And, <laughs> and tie it or attach it in some fashion to, to the wish tree. So Red, she stands near two small houses, and there's a larger home across the street. One day, someone carves leave, L-E-A-V-E, on her trunk. And it becomes clear through the story that this is a message meant for one of the residents of one of the small houses. It's a Muslim family, and they have a daughter named Samar. Red and her friend, a crow named Bongo, come up with a series of plans to help Samar make a friend and maybe help her family feel more welcome in the town. So like a lot of Catherine Applegate books, you know, at the end of the book, it's a very feel good book. That's one of the things I love about her books. It gets to the end. It makes you feel wonderful and that humans aren't complete meatheads and you can feel a little bit of optimism. So, it, and it was a quick read. I think it was three hour audiobook, and highly recommend it. Like all Catherine Applegate books, Wish Tree by Catherine Applegate. I like every single book of hers I've ever read. Yes. Yeah. All good stuff. That was so easy. Like, I'm like, okay, five stars. There we go. (laughs) Move on. Move on with your day. So Kelsey, what have you been reading? So I tend to be reading multiple things at once. I am reading a nonfiction book right now called Why We Did It by Tim Miller. I picked it up because of the NPR Politics podcast. I am also reading Women Talking. Oh, yeah. By Miriam... Taze. I think it's not what it looks like, but I think that's how you say her last name. It's T-O-E-W-S, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And it is written in kind of an unusual way. So it's for a book club. It's not a book that I chose. I'm not sure if I would have picked it up. It's interesting. It's a bunch of women in this Mennonite colony who had been drugged and abused in their sleep by men in the colony who are away in the city, at least where I am in the book, like being held, but there are other people in their community trying to raise bail so the men can come back. And the book is like a transcript of the meetings that the women had trying to decide what they're going to do. Are they going to stay? Are they going to leave? You know, they have to decide how to proceed when these men come back into their community. It's heavy. Yeah. I remember Sam Miller, our favorite bookseller, talked about this book, and she said that there's a little bit of humor in it, even though it's a really heavy book. Have you found that to be the case? Yes, there is. And it's almost a little bit odd. Like, I catch myself thinking, is that supposed to be funny? Am I supposed (laughs) to think that's funny? (laughs) Because it just feels like none of it would be a laughing matter. But Mm. of course... And I guess that is a tribute to the author. Like the characters are human and Mm -hmm. that is how life is. Even when you're in the middle of something horrific, there are still funny things that happen. Mm -hmm. There are children do silly things or so. um, Yes, there is some humor in it. And just, it's kind of an absurd situation. Mm -hmm. So there's that element of, is this really happening? And how are we even having to make these decisions? Hmm. Well, Amy... What have you had going on since you didn't 
tell me about it this week. So I'm going to talk about a thriller suspense novel that I read recently by an Australian crime writer named Sulari Gentile, I think is the way you say her name. I thought wrong. The way you pronounce her name is Sulari Gentile. And she's written over 15 novels, mostly mystery series. But this one is a standalone. It's called The Woman in the Library. And what intrigued me about this book is its structure. And also because I tend to like books about books. So I thought it was going to be about a library. And it's actually not really about a library, as you will see. But it was it was intriguing nonetheless. So this book has alternating chapters with two different storylines. And the first storyline is a murder mystery where our protagonist, Freddie, is an Australian crime writer, and she is awarded a writing fellowship to live and write for a year in Boston alongside other uh, people who received this honor, other international writers. So while she's in Boston, she heads to the Boston Public Library to do some research, and she has kind of planted herself down at this, you know, long working table, and there's three other people seated at the table. And while she's sitting there, they all hear this scream. And it turns out that a woman is found dead in, a, in an adjacent room of the library. And so the four people at this table, they're somewhat bound by this kind of traumatic experience, I guess, of hearing the scream and then later finding out that someone had died there. And so they meet outside the library afterwards and they all sort of form this impromptu friendship. But everyone in the group has secrets that may tie them to the dead woman in the library. So the second storyline to me is pretty fascinating. We learned that in the first storyline that it's a novel in progress and it's a novel in progress by this inv invisible author to us named Hannah. We never really meet Hannah, but Hannah, she's writing letters to a fellow writer named Leo who she met online and he lives in Boston but we only know Hannah through Leo's replies back to her letters. So as Hannah's book is taking shape in, in Boston, he gives her some constructive criticism about details about Boston that she could include, or he sometimes corrects her on an American way of saying something as opposed to an Australian thing. But as the book continues, it becomes clear that there is something a little creepy about Leo and in some ways, truth and fiction become intertwined. So my feeling about this book is that one storyline was way more interesting to me than the other. I was super intrigued by the pen pal relationship between our invisible writer, Hannah, and creepy Leo. And I was, <laughs> I was less interested in the storyline about the four random people in Boston who meet each other at the library. But reading Leo's reaction to each chapter that Hannah sends to him and that we, you know, as the reader of the book reads, was such a uh, novel and thrilling idea to me that it kept me reading in anticipation. So I really enjoyed the book and I thought the structure was super unique. And that, for me, made up for the fact that one storyline fell a little flat for me. So again, the name of this book is The Woman in the Library by Sulari Gentile. But it's, it's kind of a hard book to explain. Okay. But that, that's also what I thought was so interesting about it. Cool. All right. Well, these sound like good books. Uh, let's go ahead and take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to put Kelsey in the hot seat. <laughs> I'm waiting for you to say, these sound like really boring books, but we're <laughs> going to move on to the next section. <laughs> these sound like horrible choices we've all made. Don't read any of these. Ever. <laughs> back with Kelsey Madges, a middle school librarian and avid reader. Kelsey, I want to start with theater. You yes. really love theater. So you love theater so much that you get season tickets in two different cities to see theatrical performances. So what has been one of your favorite theatrical performances and why did you love it? So I feel like I have to clarify okay. that we don't get two different cities every year. There are three years where we've had tickets in two cities. And every year I get tickets to our local, our, the closer city with a good friend of mine. Okay. And we always go to dinner in the show. And then 
three times my husband and I have gotten tickets to the slightly further away city. And mostly that was so we could see Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> that's still like that's still a big commitment. Yes. It, it sounds like a terrible thing to say, but twelve shows a year is bordering on too many. Yeah. I think. Yeah. <laughs> but anyhow, having said that, I do really love the theater. I've been a Broadway subscriber for 12 years now. And this is a really hard question to answer because as I said before, I'm predisposed to enjoy things. (laughs) But I think recently the show that has been the most moving to me and the most interesting is Come From Away. Mm, That was a good one. I saw that one because I see the Broadway and Louisville shows with my neighbor. Yeah. Yeah. That one was really good. It was very moving, like just the story of how it's based on a true story and people coming together. But then also the way they staged that was so interesting to me because the costuming and the sets were really very minimal, Mm -hmm. but they so well portrayed, like the same actors were different characters, you know, by taking a hat on and off or... I don't know. I just thought it was fascinating. And I mean, I love a big, sweeping, huge cast with impressive sets and period costuming and all of that. You know, I enjoy that very much, too. But I think the innovation required to keep it simpler Mm -hmm. is really interesting. And it was an equally commanding performance as some of these, you know, huge, elaborate musicals. If somebody said to me, you know, are you a Broadway fan? I'd be like, yeah, it's all right. But I absolutely, I don't look forward to going necessarily, but I'm always so glad I did. I think that pretty much sums up your life though, Carrie. You don't look forward to anything, going to do anything. I think you should have that tattooed on you. I do not enjoy going to anything, but I'm always glad I did. Well, a lot of people say that about like exercise and Carrie's saying it about, you know, this like wonderful cultural experience. That's really funny. That is funny. And so I would say travel is the only thing that, is not that. Like, I do look forward to traveling. Okay. Well, there you go. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. Is, you know, you have to have an <laughs> exception to every rule, but I would agree that, <laughs> oh, okay. oh, well, I've just been oh, put in my place. So <laughs> <laughs> it, just, it just needed to be said. What can I say? It's true. It's funny because it's, it's true. That's right. <laughs> oh, shoot. Okay, so question number two, you also are a big fan of volleyballs. First of all, did you play? Uh, yes, I did play from fifth grade almost all the way through high school. Okay, so is this where your appreciation for the sport began? Because most people, you know, are baseball, basketball, football, maybe soccer. Volleyball is not generally one of those sports unless it's Olympic time. And then everybody's interested in volleyball. But I was wondering how your love of it began. Yeah. So I, so I went to Catholic grade school and, you know, we had our starting in fifth grade, you could play on your school team. There was basketball. I played basketball for about 30 seconds. That was not for me. I'm not very aggressive. So that didn't work, but I loved volleyball. So I played all the way through my junior year of high school. I did not play as a senior. I have a younger brother and sister. They also played. A little fun family trivia fact is that all three of us played in a state championship game. Wow. Only my sister's team won. So she's a middle child, so good for her that she gets to have that all to herself. Um, she needs something. I mean, you know. And then both my children have played. My daughter doesn't play anymore, although she is helping coach a club volleyball team this spring. And my son just made the JV team in his high school, so he's going to keep playing. But we have a university team close to – I live 10 minutes from where I went to – to college and they have a great volleyball team and it is free to go to the games. And we didn't know that until my daughter was in seventh grade because her school team went like as an outing or team bonding, went to go see the college team play and they're fantastic. And it's so much fun. So last fall, the A-10 championship, that college conference championship was in St. Louis and it was over like the Thanksgiving week. And so my daughter and I went to St. Louis to watch the tournament 
just because we could, and it was super fun. Very cool. All right. You have been a longtime blogger. Your blog dates back to 2005. So I'm wondering, how has your writing for the blog changed over time? Well, the simple answer or the easy answer is I don't write on the blog very much anymore. (laughs) It still exists. I do occasionally post something on it. I actually did this morning because I had this question in my head, but it was nothing earth shattering. When I started that blog, my daughter was almost one and she's 18 now. And I quit working when my daughter was born and I found being a stay-at-home mom to be super isolating. Mm -hmm. I did not have a lot of friends in this area my own age at that time. So I didn't have like a lot of friends who were parents and I had, had not realized how much working filled a social need for me. And that blog started kind of as an outlet and then just for processing, you know, all this stuff about being a new parent. And we have family kind of spread out, like my parents live in Wisconsin. And so it was a good way to for them to be able to see like, hey, what's going on with us? It was a way to kind of share some things. And I'm glad to have it now because it's like a digital baby book. Like mm-hmm. there's all kinds of stuff that comes up on there that I had forgotten about. As the kids have gotten older, I just found it more and more difficult to write about my parenting experience in a way that didn't feel like a little bit of an invasion of their privacy mm-hmm. because it's, it was never like an anonymous blog. Like my daughter's friends have found it <laughs> and, and will say stuff about when she was little. <laughs> and also we're entrenched in our local community in a different way now that makes me feel a little less comfortable. Mm, kind of putting like, it all out there. Being really personal on there. Yeah. So a lot of the things that I probably once upon a time would have posted on the blog, I tend to do more just on paper for myself Mm. (laughs) because I still really like to explore, think and talk about parenting and how my kids have evolved. And, but I just find it hard to do that without sharing things about them that they probably wouldn't want me to share publicly like that. But I don't want to let go of it. And I'm trying to figure out how to maybe transition to a tool that I could use, you know, more as a writer and not just as a parent. Mm -hmm if that makes sense, yeah, absolutely. which I have not at all done successfully yet. So don't, don't hold you to it. There's nothing exciting <laughs> happening there right now, but maybe someday because I do really like writing. I've had the same issue with my blog because it does change. You know, they're 19, 15 and 13. And yeah, because yeah, I, I mean, I agree. It, it does get weird. It's like, well, this is the blog about me, but well, yeah, I guess it's also about them. And my husband a yes. long time ago was like, don't talk about me at all. <laughs> Okay. As you all were talking, I was kind of thinking, I guess, maybe new blogs start, but it's not as prevalent, I don't think as it was at a certain time. No, because it seemed like at a certain time, like, everybody had a blog. Like, like I probably knew two or three people that had a blog, you know? It's really interesting because that was a great source of community for me when my kids were real young because there were a lot of, you know, mommy bloggers. And I was never, like, well-known, which is fine, but there was a little bit of a shared – I mean, I think, Carrie, that's how I originally got to know you was through yours. And – it just made me feel so much less alone, mm-hmm. but also we weren't tweeting right. or Instagramming. Right. Or do you know what I mean? There are other things that I think have, have crept into that space a little bit. Yeah. Um, but I just wonder what are our primary source documents going to be for oh, this yeah. time in history? You know, like I still keep a handwritten journal and write actual letters mm-hmm. to people. You know, no one's going to be using them for historical research, but I just feel like, all this digital stuff feels a little, I don't know, ephemeral to me yeah. or something that I just wonder where are we going to know, like when people want to know what it was like during COVID or during. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's funny you bring this up because the Filson Historical Society, Okay, when COVID was going on and I followed them on, on social media, they put a call out and they said, we're looking for ways to document COVID. Yeah. And so I contacted them and I said, you know, because at the time, I mean, I was, I blogged about COVID. And so I gave them the link and I said, you are welcome to take 
anything COVID related that you want from this. So I have a feeling that they, that's probably what they've done is that they are just sort of looking at things like that. You know, the people who are archivists, I think they're probably searching for those things and printing them and, and gathering that material just so that they have a record of it for posterity. You know, I've thought the same thing. We're not going to have any record of people sending letters to their, you know, whoever. One of the things that kind of made me sad, I was going through when I went to England when I was 19 and we sent those like airmail, you know, I sent all of these airmail letters to my parents and my friends. Nobody does that because they can just text them. Hmm. I know. It, I'm still, I'm like a dinosaur. I'm still trying to hang on to some of that stuff. Yeah. Sometimes I'd rather write, not someone, you know, who lives down the street, but like friends of mine from Wisconsin that I've known forever. I'd rather write them a letter. Yeah. And yeah. get a letter back than text. It's hard to know where to cut the text off. Yeah. Sometimes when you're just like checking in with somebody. Right. Right. <laughs> well, Kelsey, thanks so much for talking all things books and reading and middle schoolers and libraries and all of those things that we love to talk about with people. It's been fun. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod and on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover. Finally, a huge thank you to Ford Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.